Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Back Matter Publishing Industry Podcast, I'll be talking with Rebecca Giblin. Based in Melbourne, Rebecca is an associate professor in the law faculty at Monash University and an Australian Research Council Future Fellow. Rebecca's work explores the connections between regulation and culture. Working with a team comprised of researchers in social science, data science, and the law, Rebecca is a chief investigator of the Australian Research Council's Linkage Project that is designed to study the legal and social impact of library ebook lending or e-lending. She also leads the Authors' Interest Project, which explores complex issues concerning Concerning copyright and its relationship to author remuneration. You can learn about the eLending Project at eLendingProject.org, and you can learn about the Authors Interest Project at AuthorsInterest.org, and you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at RGIBLI. In this interview, we're going to talk about Rebecca's career, uh, her work, some aspects of the fraught world of copyright, um, and the eLending Project and the Authors Interest Project. So thank you very much, Rebecca, for being on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if, if you could tell us a little bit about maybe where you grew up and how you ended up in the law. I love this idea of an origin story. I hadn't thought about that before, but I, I suddenly feel like a superhero. Um, and so my origin story is I grew up in a house without books and I was one of those little kids who was just starving for things to read. So you would always find me, uh, if I had five minutes and I had to walk somewhere, I would be doing it while reading a hard copy, a hard copy book. And I would walk into trees and all kinds of things like that. And that was fine because what I was reading was much more important than not bumping my head on something. And so libraries and books were really central to me growing up and becoming the person that I am today. And it was only uh, through having access to, to books in libraries that I was able to feed that obsession and, of course, grow up into somebody that writes books of my own. And so those beginnings, I think, tie really clearly into where the kind of work that I've ended up doing as an adult. Uh, I have got, like probably most of the people listening to this podcast, I've got a, a to-read pile that is bottomless, right? There's no shortage of anything to read now, but I have never forgotten that hunger to get access to books um, that I was always completely hustling for. I, I remember as well going down to the local, we call them op shops in Australia, but it was the Salvation Army, um, you know, secondhand thrift store, I guess, for the American audience. And I would completely hustle. I would identify the volunteers who I thought were the softest touch and I would negotiate them down. Like I could get books sometimes five for four cents, things like that. Uh, so what I've uh, grown into doing as a, a researcher, I've been an academic for about 11 years now and my PhD before that. And uh, my work really focuses directly on uh, access to information as well as getting authors paid. So it sits really centrally at that intersection of law and culture. I particularly focus on literary culture um, and those questions of how does the way we regulate books affect the kinds of books that get produced and the way people get paid. And I think I, I think I managed to find a reference somewhere to the fact that you went to law school and you, did, you didn't go directly from there into academia, but you practiced for some time. I did practice for a little while, um, not too long, I have to say. I fled back into the academy quite quickly. Uh, I, I think that in my, my very first year out of law school, I had a terrific experience. I was articled, which is what we call the baby lawyer training, to the Victorian government solicitor. And there I had the opportunity to do um, really incredible work right from the first day. I actually remember the first day, the deputy Victorian government solicitor wanted up to my desk. I was the only clerk there. He dropped a file and said, can you draft a Cypre advice to the Attorney General? And at that point, Google wasn't even invented yet. Otherwise, I would have Googled what is Cypre. But my answer is like, yes, I guess. And then I figured it out from there. So having an incredible year of training, really in-depth uh, legal matters, the kind of responsibility that you don't usually get until maybe a fifth or sixth year lawyer in other environments meant that when I did go into commercial practice, um, I really missed that hardcore legal analysis. And that was what drove me uh, to go and start doing a PhD, which 
which was an incredible privilege to be able to spend my days uh, reading and writing and talking to people much smarter than me and and developing ideas. Yeah, I noticed uh, from your bio that um, you've actually managed to be around a lot of smart people in a lot of smart, uh, very interesting places. Uh, you were at Columbia in New York. You went to Berkeley for your spent some time at Berkeley in California. You were at Sciences Po in Paris. Yeah, which that's must have been just an amazing experience. Yeah, they've all been really incredible experiences. Um, certainly, I, when I was appointed the visiting uh, Koenigsegg International IP professor at Columbia back in 2011, uh, that was to be in that environment where you would go into the faculty lounge to get your coffee, um, and there might be a Supreme Court justice there. There might be, um, you know, the the winner of a Nobel Prize. Or, or just somebody almost certainly that you're going to have a really interesting conversation with. That was a real eye-opener for me um, uh, into a world of big ideas that I got really addicted to. Was your PhD in Australia? Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the reasons why I've spent so much time since uh, traveling around into different environments and making sure that I'm exposed to uh, different ideas. And that's particularly valuable for somewhere like France, uh, Sciences Po. The French approach to copyright in particular is vastly different to the, um, the Commonwealth and North American approach. And it's really important to understand those ideas and where they're coming from in order to be able to think sensibly about things like international copyright law reform, because just pretending that those uh, different ideas don't exist isn't going to move us forward on uh, reaching some kind of um, consensus about reform that, that fits with all of those different ideas. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. Thank you for bringing up this sort of unique situation in France. It actually came up in an interview I did um, earlier today with someone else, but from a completely different angle. Um, and uh, it's interesting because we're in this moment where, at least in the sort of like tiny section of the news that's interested in the book publishing industry and literature, um, right now there's a little controversy brewing. And well, I say little, there's a controversy brewing in the cultural world in France because a book that was self-published on Amazon's CreateSpace um, uh, was nominated for a prominent literary prize. And and um, there's a lot of people talking about it. And it, it is really interesting to think that like they're just they're, the situation in France is unique. Um, and it's very like, complex uh, because there's aspects of like, you know, being kind of technocratic, um, but also kind of, I, I, at least as I see it, but also sort of desiring there to be a guiding hand uh, leading leading the culture, and that this finds its way not just into business practices, but also into a lot of regulation as well. Yeah, the, the French system is absolutely fascinating, particularly as regards the book publishing regulations. Uh, one of the things that people might not understand about France is that they've got really strict rules that are designed to uh, ensure that small booksellers continue to be viable. And that's why you'll still find a really good bookshop, even in quite small villages when you visit France. And certainly in the some of the regional cities like Lyon and Toulouse, they've got bookstores like I've never seen anywhere else in the world. Um, but what that comes with is this kind of gatekeeper attitude that we saw. I, I tweeted that article too. I was really fascinated by it. Um, we have this gatekeeper attitude where the booksellers are absolutely outraged that this author who self-published has been allowed past the gatekeepers and given sort of this um, acknowledgement of quality. And they don't seem to be blaming the hordes of publishers that refuse to publish this work in the first place. They're blaming the committee and indeed the author uh, himself. But the French system also has some really interesting protections for authors that I think other countries could learn from. Um, one of the things that we're really interested in at the Authors' Interest Project is reversion rights. And that means uh, rights going back to authors uh, after maybe a period of time or some other um, factor occurring. And so what they've done in the French law, so since 2014, they've had a, a law that says... If your book's been published for at least four years and you haven't received any royalties for the last two, then you can get your rights back. You just have to send a letter, all right, and you get that as of right. 
And that's a, that's a really interesting balance to have struck that says, okay, well, we know that in a traditional publication contract, the publisher will take the rights for the entire term of copyright, no matter how long that is. Um, and this says, well, in the world that we live in today, if the, that it's not of commercial interest to the publisher, then the author should be able to get it back. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a really interesting thing to think about. And we've got different reversion systems that operate elsewhere in the world. The US one that you might be familiar with that allows authors to terminate after 35 years. Um, and then we've got uh, another one in Canada, for example, that says the rights automatically go to the author's heirs after 25 years after death. And I don't know if you've seen uh, in the media this morning lots of people talking about Brian Adams, the Canadian songwriter, coming up before the Canadian Parliament saying, well, you know, we should delete just one word there, the bit about death, and say well, Canadian authors should get their rights back after 25 years. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. But literally, like two minutes before this interview started, I clicked over into the news and saw, you know, Brian Adams in a copyright story. Um, uh, it is it is interesting when you start looking for it, how you see how copyright really is all around us um, all the time, not not just, you know, sort of in legal form, but in the news, because it really is something that's so important to so many people. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about a couple of those issues a bit later. Uh, but before we move on, actually, it's funny, you, you brought it up, but I remarked from one, something you wrote, I think, about the Author's Interest Project, about growing up feeling a scarcity of books. Um, and that resonated with me, because in discussions I have with people, uh, including authors, but also people in the publishing industry, um, I've, I've actually, I actually used that particular experience as a way of kind of like categorizing people because there are some people who you can just tell when you talk to them that they experience scarcity one way or another. Um, you know, uh, in some cases it's like, you know, I couldn't get books about divorce because I lived in a very Catholic community. Um, mm. in other cases it can be, you know, my family was very poor or we lived in a very remote neighborhood or we just, you know, my parents didn't buy books, you know, they, they just weren't into that kind of thing. And what, one very particular way that I like to kind of zero in on this in a slightly antagonistic way is when people don't just say positive things about print books, what could be wrong with that? But when people make negative comments about eBooks, mm. um, I find that those tend to be and people who even in their imagination haven't experienced scarcity because once you have, you're like, what could be better than the Gutenberg project? As, as soon as I could read books on the computer, I, the first thing I looked up on the internet was the Brothers Karamazov. Mm. Um, yeah. Do, do you think that, that that experience has had an impact on your approach to things? Look, absolutely, it has. Um, and indeed, I remember from when Gutenberg started, I was reading that on my screen and I was reading uh, everything on my from the time the first PDAs were able to show books with just awful screens, terrible battery life, uh, all of the eye strain. Um, I was reading it because I was still so hungry for something to read at that point. So I hear people say, oh, I can't read ebooks. Um, for me, I probably still read uh, about 150 books a year, which is less than I would like, but probably more than um, most other people in my line of work. Um, and if I had to have all of those in physical form, there's no way I could still feed that habit. Um, it's, it's really interesting as well when we hear about, um, there's a lot of disdain for ebooks, and I think that there's a lot of a downward pressure on them. Um, publishers, certainly, I'm thinking of Hachette in particular, are really not encouraging of this format. And I, I wonder sometimes, who do they think their audience is? And certainly from people my generation and then the next ones coming up after me, um, if you want them to keep reading books, where are they going to put all of these physical books? Certainly, we've got uh, massive um, house prices around the world. We've got students graduating with more and more crippling debt from college. Um, we're not really in a paradigm with a massive house in the suburbs that's easily accessible and plenty of disposable income for people to keep buying physical books. Um, so e-books are really... Uh, I think a terrific substitute for people that wouldn't wouldn't otherwise, for whatever reason, be able to access physical. 
And so th that's one of the reasons as well why this uh, project that we're we're doing into e-lending in public libraries is so important. Because if you're a kid growing up today and you live in a place where you're lucky enough to have a well, or I'd say appropriately resourced public library system, then you don't have to be hungry for books. If you've got access to the internet and a device to read on it, you'll be able to go to your library's website, download an app, log in and get as many books as you want from wherever you are. And that's, that's an incredible thing that, that digital has enabled. Yeah, we'll be talking a little bit more about that later. Thanks for that great answer. Um, so this interview was not time to coincide with the internet freaking out about copyright rules, um, but it's just a couple days ago that um, the EU voted on um, its copyright directive, moving it, the legislation along to a new stage. And um, in particular, uh, there was something called Article 13 that people were very preoccupied with, and there was also something called Article 11. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that you're quite up on these things. Uh, yep, I've certainly been following along. Okay, and I was wondering, as someone who works in this area, if you could talk a little bit about what just what you think is going on. Will there will there be an internet filter? Look, uh, the, procedurally, this was really concerning how these uh, these changes came to be introduced really at the the last minute. So there was a change to the directive, um, and. Article 13 in particular um, is, is something that was introduced. And for those people who aren't familiar with it, what it does is it requires online providers um, to make databases of copyrighted material. Um, and if a user tries to post something that might match one of those copyrighted works, then the system basically has to censor them. I'm really concerned about this proposal, uh, but in large part, my concerns come from um, worries that I have about the virtually monopoly power of some of the largest um, technology companies that we've got at the moment. So take Amazon, for example. Um, Publishers decided to do something really similar with Amazon way back when it started. They decided that if Amazon was going to sell ebooks, then uh, DRM or digital rights management technology had to be attached uh, so that nobody could uh, easily copy them. And then uh, they made sure that laws were passed requiring uh, or making it illegal for people to bypass DRM. And then that also got uh, put into international law in various treaties and requiring countries to enact that sort of law. That all sounds really good at first instance, but let's think about what that has ended up doing. What that has meant is that People started using Amazon when Amazon was um, basically the only widespread provider with the best catalog. And then they've got lock-in because they've bought books on Amazon and they don't want to have their libraries spread out across a whole bunch of different apps and different platforms. And they want to make sure that they're buying books with someone who's going to be there next year. And so they keep buying books on Amazon. Now, nobody, because of DRM, nobody can transfer their books to another platform. And uh, that means that people can't start up competitors that, that, that reduce Amazon's power and enable negotiation of different kinds of terms that might better suit publishers and authors. And what I think we're doing with Article 13 is exactly the same trap. Uh, this is clearly aimed at the, 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 the big internet giants like Google and Facebook, but Google and Facebook will have absolutely no difficulty complying with this. What this does, a requirement like Article 13, is it puts massive roadblocks in the way that prevents a new company from starting up and competing with Google or Facebook. And so I think it's really poorly thought out um, and a real disappointment that even as we're living the difficulties that come from the Amazon experience, people still keep trying to repeat them. Yeah, I'd just like to uh, take the opportunity to give a shout out. Today is the um, International Day Against DRM that's organized oh. every year by this organization <laughs> that, that we support. So I'm, thank you very much for bringing that up and for that great explanation. Um, uh, some people representing the rights of authors in Europe have claimed that the, the copyright directive, including these um, articles, will actually result in authors earning more money. Do you think that's true? 
Look, again, it is really complicated, but certainly the experience that we've seen in some European countries, like Germany, for example, uh, that created a link tax, they, they made it so that um, if a search engine wanted to make available snippets of news, like you find in the Google News, for example, uh, with a headline, then they would have to pay for that. The search engines responded by saying, okay, well, that's fine, um, but then we're not going to include that in the search engine rather than pay for it. And what we saw happen was just a massive reduction in traffic to those websites. And so that's what I mean when I say that it's, it's complicated. If we want to get authors paid, I think we need to think much more directly about how we divide things up, what the bundle of rights is and who gets what. Um, but I, I think, I, I, look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to uh, concerns. Uh, 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 look, it's more than concerns. I think there is a visceral rage and distress by many working in the publishing industries that companies like Google and Facebook that invest so little into the production of the creative material are nonetheless reaping such an enormous share of the, the, the value that results from that. I absolutely get that. I don't think things like link taxes and filtering are the way to address it. Uh, but I do think that we should address it. And I, I think rather than copyright, I think a much... The, the reason why copyright doesn't work is because it creates so much collateral damage. Right. Um, very often. So things like um, reducing the amount of traffic that goes to the site in the first place or making it unfindable in the first place, that's collateral damage. What I think would be a much better line of pursuit is to think about unfair competition law. Right. Are Google and Facebook unfairly competing with online other you know, online news platforms, for example. And I think that an appropriately drawn unfair competition law has much more potential to help rectify this imbalance with less collateral damage. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up collateral damage because one of one of my I mean one of my I have all the common preoccupations about it, but another concern I have about this kind of thing is that when laws are created in order to be useful, they need to be enforced. Mm -hmm. um, and the act of enforcing those laws has an impact on the people and the societies who enforce them. Um, this can be anything from immigration policy um, to things like copyright. Um, and if for example, uh, uh, we, we have a policy that um, you can get a refund within 45 days with two clicks, no questions asked on our site. Um, and we occasionally get people going, how can you do that? Doesn't that mean someone can't just download the book and keep it and then get the refund? And our it took us a while to sort of get to the right response, which was our position is that we shouldn't treat everyone like they're thieves. Mm -hmm. Because then we would, when you start adopting that attitude towards everyone, it actually, I, I mean, I, I would say somewhat romantically, like either it's going to corrupt you or you were corrupted in some sense in the first place to arrive at that attitude towards not just not just other people in, in some sort of you know weak way, but like as a very powerful business approach, uh, mm -hmm. treating people like they're innocent until you have a reason to treat them like they're guilty uh, frees up a lot of things and makes a lot of positive positive things possible that aren't otherwise possible. And to normalize the idea that like everybody when they're uploading something should be treated like they might be infringing. Just mm -hmm. strikes me as like something that could have some very damaging collateral damage, including it, it becoming invisible and just an everyday idea. Mm. And it's also it's it's a really good point. Um, this overcompliance, treating everybody like a criminal. Uh, moving on to the next part of the interview, I'm really looking forward to learning more about the eLending project. Um, I'll, I'll link in the uh, transcription to uh, a, a video of you speaking recently at a conference in Kuala Lumpur for the, I think it was the International Federation of Library Associations. Yeah, that's right. They had their World Library and Information Congress. Yeah, so this is just very new. Um, and uh, yeah, so can you, uh, well, I'll, I'll put the link in the transcription, but if you could talk a little bit about what this project is. So libraries have always been able to buy and lend physical books without having to get the publisher's permission. But for ebooks, it's different. 
because to buy and lend an ebook that involves the making of copies and transmissions, which means that copyright gets involved. So for ebooks, publishers suddenly have the right to say, okay, yes, you can lend out ebooks, but they wear out after 26 loans. Or, okay, yes, you can buy this book, but you have to buy a thousand more from us uh, if you want that one. Um, or they can say, no, you can't uh, have our books in your e-collection on any terms whatsoever. And it's not that anybody made a deliberate decision to, to regulate e-books differently. It's just the consequence of the nature of digital. And what we wanted to do is work out what this actually means for public libraries' abilities to fulfill their public interest missions. And so we've got a team, uh, you introduced it earlier on, of data scientists and communication and uh, legal researchers. We've been working on this. The, the project started about four years ago now. We've been funded for the last two. And we've now gathered an evidence base about how publishers are uh, licensing books to public libraries uh, in five English language jurisdictions around the world. Uh, we've done a bunch of different studies, but the one that we just released in Kuala Lumpur is one looking at almost 100,000 books um, across Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the US and Canada and really examining in quite fine detail what are the differences across countries, uh, what are the differences across type of publisher, um, and now we're going to move on and start figuring out how this is impacting library decision-making. I read there was a very interesting kind of procedural hurdle, which was um, you were trying to get data from companies that compete with each other. Mm. How did you manage to pull that off? Well, look, I, I, I should say thanks, first of all, to all of the aggregators. Every uh, main aggregator did agree to participate uh, eventually. Uh, it was a little bit difficult to convince them to provide this data. The libraries couldn't just tell us um, the about availability and pricing and license type because in this kind of contract, there's usually quite strict confidentiality clauses. So completeness uh, was really important to us. We needed to get everybody on board, and that meant convincing five companies that that at least for a small sample of books that they should provide us with this information. And I think they didn't want to largely because, well, it's not their problem. They probably felt it was not their problem. Um, and they were probably a bit suspicious about how we would use it. And uh, it's really nice to see that there's been a big turnaround since then. So uh, one of the things that we were told by the aggregators is there's absolutely no point investigating this or collecting this data because what you're going to find is that the terms on which these books are made available are going to be exactly the same to all of us in the single jurisdiction. So what we're talking about now is the focus study that we did. It's separate to the one with the 100,000 books, but this one is a deep dive into one jurisdiction to understand and um, the differences across platforms within one country. They told us, don't even bother doing that. You're going to get the same price, the same licenses for everybody, and there'll just be a, like some little differences with availability. And we said, okay, well, that's fine, but we're researchers, so we're going to do it anyway. Um, our library partners were very supportive of having this done and uh, made that clear to the aggregators and the aggregators all agreed to participate. Uh, fast forward to the results, uh, we found that there were different license terms in almost half of the cases. And that was a massive surprise um, to us, to the libraries, but particularly to the aggregators as well. This is their business, but because of the secrecy around it, um, even they didn't know that these differences were there. So they weren't expecting to find this at all. One of the funniest examples um, was that one aggregator got in touch with us and they were pretty indignant about this. They said, your, your data is wrong. Um, you, we can see that this one platform has books from a particular publisher available on a perpetual license, but in fact that publisher changed to metered access ages ago. So your data is wrong. What are you going to do about it? And so we looked into it, and what we found is that the publisher had indeed changed their terms for four of the five platforms, but for the fifth platform, they didn't get around to doing it until almost, a, I think it was just over six months after we collected this data. And all, all told, it took the publisher five years to roll out the updated terms to all five aggregators. Um, and so that's that's really fascinating. So we what we learned from this is that it's very difficult um, for libraries to know what's going on, like how to choose an aggregator 
are based on um, license and price. But it's also very difficult for aggregators to compete on those things because they don't know what's happening either. Yeah, you mentioned um, you mentioned metered versus perpetual access, and I love I love the image you use of exploding books. Uh, and I was wondering <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about um, how library lending deals work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I've also just written a new post on the Authors Interest website that people can have a look if they want to think about this a little bit more. But it's really important to think about for publishers and authors as well, how these deals are structured and what that means for royalty and also public lending right income. So <clears throat> there's two main licenses that were uh, applying at the time that we did this study. There's one called um, One Copy, One User, or OCOU, and that's a perpetual license that lasts for as long as the library has access to the platform, whereby they can lend the book to one reader at a time. Then the alternative is metered access, which is also limited to one reader at a time, but then there's further restrictions. And that's either by the uh, amount of time or the number of loans or both. And where you've got a time-limited license, so anyone that's got a time limitation on it, that's what we call an exploding license, because these ones get deleted from library collections as soon as the time is up, regardless of whether anyone has read them at all. So a few interesting implications from this. Um, when we think about the, the royalties that are payable, the one copy, one user books, uh, that looks a lot like a sale, the one copy, one user licenses, um, and they're probably going to be paid by publishers at the same rate as a, an ebook sale, so maybe 25% or 50% or you know, really depending on your contract. For the metered access ones, those are much more clearly licenses. They're not analogous to a sale. Um, and those ones should be paid at a higher rate, uh, depending on what your contract said, but it says, but it might be 75 or 80%. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to do some work to understand if those licenses are being correctly paid uh, at those higher rates, but it's very difficult to find out due to the opacity of royalty statements in the jurisdictions that we've been looking at. Yeah, that's what the um, public lending right. Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Then there's public lending rights uh, issues, which do um, they're separate to copyright in most countries, and they see authors receive some additional money for use of their books in public libraries. Uh, in Canada and the UK, those have recently been extended to ebooks, so an ebook uh, does get an additional payment, just like a physical book. In Australia, we haven't yet had that. The um, the government has been calling for more data to be able to understand the, the, the licensing arrangements where the libraries are already paying on an ongoing um, basis for books and what that looks like. Now that we have finally provided all of this data, we're really hopeful that that's going to be able to move forward and we'll get the, the PLR extended. But some of the things that we found when we investigated these practices were really concerning. And that's particularly the case for uh, books with lower demand. So I'm sure listeners to this podcast will know that uh, uh, books have high rates of cultural depreciation. Sales drop off of a, a cliff maybe after six or eight months sort of at the outside. Um, indeed, I'm, I'm more and more hearing now that three weeks is about the shelf life in a bookstore for a book unless it really picks up some steam. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of books being published, so lots of competition for, for eyeballs. Uh, when we had a look at the ways in which older books were being licensed compared to newer ones, we found that older books were being made available on exploding licenses at similar rates to the very newest ones. And so uh, we then looked at the pricing and said, well, it's, okay, maybe it's okay if it's on one of those time-limited licenses if the price is lower to reflect that it's going to have lower demand. But again, our, our study looking at these almost 100,000 books, um, almost 400,000 licenses in total, we found that that's not the case either. The pricing of older books is actually higher um, on average than for the very newest books. And the, the concerning, um, one of the concerning things that that raises is that it might be preventing public libraries from including those older but still culturally valuable books in their collections at all. Because if you're a library, you've got a fixed collections budget, you want to maximize circulations, get the, the most value out of that. Are you going to buy the new book 
um, that's on a, a two-year 36 loan license, or are you going to buy a Pulitzer Prize winner from the 1960s that's on the same license at the same price, but is probably not going to circulate anywhere near as much? It's really fascinating, the, the, these, these issues for, as you say, uh, institutions that have public interests at stake, like libraries do. I mean, when a book goes out of a library, then people who can't afford it can't get it anymore. That piece of knowledge, that piece of culture, that, that part of history is actually gone for them. And um, so there's a concept of copyright libraries that I'm sure every everybody's heard about, you know, the Library of Congress. The uh, United States gets a copy of every paper book that's published. The Bodleian Library and the British Library in Britain, and I think there's actually a couple others in the UK as well, um, have that. Uh, I guess my next question is, do you have copyright libraries like that in Australia? Uh, we do, and in fact, the National Library um, has recently started a digital deposit scheme as well that's supported by legislation, uh, which is just starting to be rolled out now to in, in ensure that there's at least that um, kind of archive of books. But that's quite a separate question to are they actually accessible, you know, on the ground and how accessible are they on the ground um, to people living in the society? And I, I think that there's... I love the Norwegian model, for example, where they've created a digital public library with every book published in Norway um, from, I can't, don't quote me on this, um, but from about maybe uh, 10 years old and, 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 and older. Um, they've, they're, they're paying for all of those uses. That's the, what they put the money from their mining boom into. One of the things was the creation of this digital public library. And that's, that's proving really incredible. Um, I saw a statistic recently that really made me raise my eyebrows about how many of those books had actually been accessed. The idea was, well, people are just going to read the, you know, the few most popular ones and the rest are being digitized for no reason. But in fact, that long tail was being accessed at really high rates. Like most of those books had been looked at by someone. And I think there's so many important uh, stories being told, and in particular, I'm thinking about important Australian stories that don't necessarily sell many copies, but should still be accessible and appropriately paid for um, to the members of that society. And, and that that brings me to the the economics of the book industry. Can we jump into that a little bit? Uh, so, in Australia, it's a, uh, again, it's a fairly small uh, country, but a best-selling Australian book will sell maybe seven thousand. 7,000 copies. And so I was looking at a breakdown recently about where that money goes. So this was um, put on Twitter um, uh, by at Miranda Luby. And it's uh, a, a recent one. Uh, who's making the money? So if we sell 7,000 copies at, at $30 each, we're talking about $210,000 uh, retail price. Uh, the booksellers are going to get 40 to 50% of that. Right? So they've put 40% as a conservative estimate, uh, $84,000. But I think these days booksellers are asking for closer to 50 for lots of different kinds of books. Uh, the author's share at a 10% royalty is going to be about 17850 after we take out the, the agent's cut um, of maybe another three grand. And that leaves 104000 to the publisher to cover everything else. And that's the printing and the transport and the distribution, dealing with the returns, the typeset of the proof reader, the editors, the publisher, jacket, all of that other stuff. Now, when we look at this, we see it's not that there's no money in publishing, but we see that the amount of it that actually flows down to the author is pretty small. Um, and also, when we talk when we talk realistically about the book industry, we see that the amounts that, that flow through to the other people working for the publisher, the editor, for example, are not usually crash hot either. Um, this is an industry that I think is still only just starting to grapple with its exploitation problem. Um, the reality that in many cases it's built on a backbone of underpaid, largely female labor, um, and that nobody is necessarily doing particularly well. And there's one of the comments on this tweet that says the answer is no one. No one makes the money in publishing. Um, and I think it's a very, very difficult industry. 
Um, but one that still has a lot of work to do in thinking about how that money that is made from it gets distributed, how things are done, whether you know all of the things that a traditional publisher has done in the past are still worth doing or whether they should cut back on some of that and give some more to the author. Um, but I think we've got real problems when we say that the, the person who might have spent one or two years sitting down and pouring their blood and labor into writing the raw material for this comes out with maybe $17,000 of the 210,000 that comes from a bestseller. Yeah, this is probably a great time to uh, move on to talk about the author's interest project, uh, since you bring up economics and labor. Um, one of the striking things you write about in relation to that project is the fact that in activities like book writing, lots of people want to do it, and they want to do it very badly. And this creates <laughs> this interesting economic situation that's ripe for uh, low pay. Yeah, that's right. Um, my work uh, ties in very closely with the work of cultural economists like Professor Ruth Cowles who've spent their careers studying the economics of creative labor markets. Um, and when I speak to authors, I see everything that they have documented just right in front of me. Um, authors are terrified that they might do something that will make them lose a book deal or make them less attractive um, to get a deal. And this was really striking uh, recently. I met a woman who had just signed a book contract with one of the big five uh, with their uh, educational arm. This saw her receive, I think it was 1200 US dollars, uh, 1200 US dollars in exchange for a complete buyout. So they took all of her economic rights whatsoever for the entire term of the contract. That meant that uh, no matter how successful the book was, uh, she was not ever going to see another dollar under the contract in addition to that, um, that, that upfront lump payment. Uh, the payment didn't come until after she'd fully completed the book and it had been published. Uh, it meant that she would get no income whatsoever from copying of that book in uh, by, by schools or, or uh, universities under our statutory licensing payments. 100% of that money would go to the publisher and it was likely for the, a book of this nature that it would be copied and there would be payments under that. And it also meant that the author wouldn't be entitled to any money under our public lending rights because the way they're set up mean that the um, the author only has an entitlement if they have an ongoing entitlement to royalties. And still she's telling me all of this and I'm very concerned about it. And still she says, uh, and I ask her if I can write about it and speak about it. And she says, yes, but can you please make sure that you don't use anything that could tie it back to me because I want to make sure that they'll still publish my next book. Right, so <laughs> that just uh, tells us a lot about what we're dealing with. There are really intrinsic drives to create and to share and be published and to have that recognition of being published with what we might see as a prestigious publisher. And they can lead authors to accept um, far lower amounts of money than what they would expect for other forms of labor. So if, you think, if you're an author and you're listening to this, so think about how much you would charge to paint a fence compared to write a book. Um, they're probably going to be really different amounts. Now, the, what we've got in a lot of countries, the UK um, and, and to a large extent, uh, Canada, the United States and Australia, we take this thing called a laissez-faire approach to, to contract, which is freedom to contract. But in that case, what it means is it's freedom to give away all of your rights, um, probably for very little before anybody actually knows what they're worth. And I think that that, uh, that laissez-faire approach demonstrably harms not only authors by preventing them from getting a fair share, but also society because it means that rights can get locked up for a really long time um, without necessarily any obligation to continue exploiting them. And that's one of the reasons why reversion is such an interesting possibility for reform. Because if we were to have strong reversion laws that saw the rights go back to authors, it would open up all kinds of interesting possibilities that are currently foreclosed. So let, like, let me give you an example that ties in the e-lending project to the author's interest project. The um, libraries that I've spoken to uh, aim for about a $1 per circulation amount. 
um, in a lot of cases for ebooks. So let's use that as a quick rule of thumb. One dollar per circulation. Uh, let's say you're an author of, um, you know, uh, a, a, a five or 10 year old book. It's no longer really selling. You're not really getting any royalties. Your publisher is, um, would be happy to sort of bung it up there in the catalog for libraries to buy, but libraries aren't really buying it because the, the, the price and the license terms don't really make sense. If we had a reversion law like the French law um, or a time-based law that saw the rights go back to authors in a wholesale sort of way, we could readily imagine a new market emerging for authors to be able to directly license their books into public libraries. Say, for example, for $1 per circulation, which would go entirely to authors. Um, and it might be that the, the book is then held in all uh, public libraries in a particular country, wherever the, the author licenses it. It might not be read very many times. You know, it might be read, you know, or borrowed 50 times a year, and that's $50. That $50 is not of any interest to the publisher, right? But it might well be of some interest to authors um, who have much lower incomes to start with in many cases. And that availability of those books could, you know, the widespread availability of them could indeed see that they get a much larger audience than that. So money that's, we've got two problems. We've got money being left on the table, right? And we've got authors not getting paid. There are ways to reconceptualize the way we allocate the rights in order to fix both of those problems. And when it when it comes to reversion, one of the one of the um, responses that um, I, I keep hearing for, for, from publishers and their advocates are, well, yeah, of course, but you need to make sure that there's enough incentive for uh, the investment to be made in the first place. And absolutely, copyright is about rewards and incentives. Uh, we want to incentivize the investment and in getting the thing created in the first place. And continuing to make it available. And we want to reward the creator uh, who made it. So if we think about those two things, they're actually quite separate how we give effect to them. To incentivize the creation uh, and the ongoing investment, we don't really mind who gets what's necessary to incentivize the rights as long as the thing gets created and made available. But the reward share, we do care who gets that. That's justifiable only for the creator themselves. And if we disentangle the incentives and rewards motivations like that, we can start to see um, that it is possible to give better effect to both. We can maintain incentives while doing a better job of getting rewards to authors. And if you look at uh, all of the economic analyses about what is necessary to incentivize that initial creation of works, between uh, the answers come back at between about 10 years and a maximum of 25 years of exclusive rights are enough to incentivize even the most lavish investments. So on top of that, is the reward share. And so it makes a lot of sense to structure rights in a way so that the author does get another bite at the cherry and able to enjoy that share. And it might be that they license the work right back to the, the same publisher that they did before, but it might be that someone else values them more highly or that there are better options for the uh, author to distribute it directly to the audience and those should be available as well. Yeah, this is a very interesting distinction you make between um, uh, ownership and authorship and the moral claims that an author has that are more long-term than the sort of investment, the, 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 the claims that one has because, you know, one's the publisher and, you know, you've made a, a financial investment in something. Um, I've, got, I've got a question. Um, uh, one thing, if one follows the publishing industry news that comes up, say, once a year in, in many different countries is how much are authors earning? Um, I know you've got some data about this uh, on the uh, Author Interest website, um, and this, this has come up in the news not too long ago, it seems to me, in the UK, um, and various author advocacy groups will highlight these numbers, usually with the hope of, you know, advancing authors' interests. But I guess the question I have for you is, just to invoke a kind of cartoonish image, if I'm a big five publishing company CEO and I'm sitting in my tower in Manhattan, uh, do I care about any of the news around what authors are earning and any of the complaining that people are doing? Look, I, I can't say what a big five CEO is thinking in his tower, but 
I am about to give a, a keynote at the Small Press Network uh, here in Australia's event in November. And my talk's called Hashtag Not All Publishers um, because I think that it's really important to recognize that even while we have the Simon and & Schuster's and Penguin Random Houses of the world reporting profits of around 16%, that is very far from the reality for most small and independent publishers who are running on passion and a shoestring and a hope and a prayer and uh, are, are just telling the stories that need to be told um, and part of that is for the love of it and nobody's really making very much money but the work is important and they're driven. Um, for these publishers I still think that there's a lot that they can do to think about the traditional way that they have um, uh, designed author contracts and how they might do it differently in the future because I think these publishers are concerned about the little share that is left for authors once all of the other bills have been paid. They would like to do more, right? But there isn't any more. You can't squeeze blood out of a stone. You know, when we, we look at, um, you know, one of the the, the top literary prizes in a, in Australia, the Miles Franklin, you can sell 3,000 copies right after making it onto the shortlist and that's it and that's a pretty respectable showing. There's just not any money. Um, there's not any money in it. But what I think these publishers can do is they can say, well, actually, what do we need? Do we need to actually take the rights for the entire term of the copyright in order to pay off our investment or to have a chance of paying off our investment? And I think the answer, if, if they really think critically about it, is no, right? Um, that they, they can think about the distribution and they can think about whether, whether there should be a wholesale reversion, right? You know, whether it would be actually in their interest to push for all contracts um, to or all rights, sorry, to revert back to authors after a certain period of time or in certain circumstances, that would then free up rights for them to continue investing in material that was, say, originally published by the big five is no longer of interest to them, but the smaller publisher thinks that they can find a new audience for it or they can, they can do something better with it. Um, I, I think that while I can't say what the, the big five are thinking, um, I have a lot of faith and a lot of love for the, the independent publishers, particularly here in Australia that I'm really familiar with. And I'm looking forward to talking to them about how we can do things a little bit differently. Uh, my last question is, um, so uh, you've, you've been running these two great projects. Uh, I'm very, always very personally happy to hear about government supporting projects like this with, with funding. Um, uh, are there going to be any regulatory proposals that come out of, of either project from you? Yeah, that's the idea. Um, what we really are doing at this stage with both is we're building the evidence base in order to allow us to make recommendations for reform of law, both domestically and internationally, and also reform of practice, like I've just been talking about um, uh, in the, the, the publishing space, in the library space as well. We are already talking to the government about how what we've discovered in uh, the e-lending landscape can push forward those discussions about extending the public lending rights to e-books. And I'm really hopeful that this is going to be um, uh, the, the, the nudge that was needed to move that forward expeditiously. Um, but absolutely, the only reason I'm doing this work is with the idea of uh, affecting some meaningful change that actually makes things better for authors and the broader public. Thank you for that. Thank you for that very optimistic note to end the, the interview on. Uh, and uh, thank you for taking the time out of, a, I imagine, a nice afternoon in Melbourne uh, to talk to me way over here. Thanks, Len. It was lovely to chat.